just over halfway through the Bible, Daniel is. Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like crystallite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left, my face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. When he was saying this to me, I bowed my face towards the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia and and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Thanks, Carl.
Well, how is that, uh, the description of that uh, job that Jordan uh, had before, kayaking, hiking, canoeing? I thought to myself, I'm in the wrong ministry. Uh, I think I may not come back after holidays. And then I thought, no, actually, I wouldn't like any of that stuff anyway, so it's probably just as well that Jordan's doing that and not me. Uh, each their own, I suppose. Well, we're looking at Daniel this morning. Let's pray before we, uh, we dig into that. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for this vision that you gave to Daniel uh, so many hundreds of years ago. And Lord, we ask that as we uh, think about them this morning, that your spirit would open your words to us, uh, that your spirit would help us to understand not only the past, but also the future, uh, that your spirit would help us to see clearly your might and your power and your sovereignty uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it's hard to believe, I think, that we've come to the end uh, of the book of Daniel. We're looking this morning at uh, the last three chapters, not just uh, the chapter that, uh, that Marty read for us before. But I hope it's been a wonderful trip for you through the book of Daniel. Uh, it seems like a long time ago that Daniel and his friends were taken into exile Uh, It seems a long time ago that Nebuchadnezzar had that uh, that vision of that statue made from the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and clay. Uh, It seems like a long time ago since Nebuchadnezzar went mad and uh, and was cast out into the wilderness. Uh, And it seems a long time ago that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Well, it's been a couple of months for us going through that, but it was 70 years of Daniel's life. Uh, 70 years in exile. And here we are at the end, these last three chapters, and they make up this one vision, this last vision of the future, like the last three visions that we've looked at over the last three weeks. Well, these, uh, these last chapters are concerned with this one vision of the future, and that vision takes place in the third year of King Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus uh, was uh, the king of the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, And it's at the time in the third year, some of the people of God have returned from exile. So Cyrus is the one who issues the decree at the beginning uh, of Ezra uh, for the people to return back to Jerusalem uh, and to begin rebuilding the temple. So some of the people in Daniel's day had returned, but Daniel himself is still in Babylon on the banks of the Tigris River. And as he stands there, he sees this dazzling figure. He's utterly terrified uh, and he falls to the ground. But this figure has come, we're told, to explain his vision. At the beginning of the chapter he has this vision but he doesn't understand what it means. Uh, So he prays and he doesn't use lotions as you do for a a period of uh, three weeks while he he waits to find out the meaning of of this vision. And this figure comes, this dazzling figure comes to explain to Daniel the meaning of his vision. He doesn't actually get to the meaning of the vision until chapter 11. But here in chapter 10, we catch a glimpse of something else very important. Not just a a glimpse of the future, but a glimpse, if you like, of reality. This vigour explains in verse 12 that he came in response to Daniel's prayer. But verse 13, he says, 
The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. You get something similar in verse 20. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of the truth. Book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. There are these princes, Michael, your prince, the prince of Greece, the prince of Persia. They seem to be these supernatural figures. Michael, who stands with the people of God and the prince of Greece and the prince of Persia as supernatural figures who stand against the people of God. There seems to be this this supernatural reality behind the world in which Daniel lives. Nations are fighting against nations, but in truth, there stands behind those things Michael, the prince of God's people, and the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. We've seen all the way through Daniel that human kingdoms rise up against and uh, rise up and fight against each other, and they fight against God and they fight against the people of God. And what this this figure does is peel back the curtains for us to show us what's going on in the heavenly places. There have been hints throughout this whole book of those realities. There was the figure in the furnace with Daniel's friends, with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. So too it was an angel in the lion's den that shut the the mouths of the lions. We saw in chapter 7, you might remember, that vision of God seated high and on the throne in control as the beastly human kingdoms fight for the world. The curtain is peeled back. The curtain is peeled back for Daniel. The curtain was peeled back in a a unique way as well during the ministry of Jesus. He drove out demons. There was a a spectacular fight, played out not in visions and in dreams, but in time and space. As Jesus waged a war against the spiritual forces that stood behind his opposition. Paul reminds us in the New Testament, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly, uh, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These spiritual forces, I think, are, are a little bit like gravity. We experience gravity every day, every moment of every day. It keeps us planted on the ground. It keeps us spinning around the sun. We experience it every day, but we don't see it. We don't see it, but we experience the effects of it in the lives that we live. And so it is with this great cosmic battle. We don't see it, but we feel its effects at every moment. And yet so easily, we forget it. We forget the cosmic scale of the battle. We forget that there are forces which stand behind what's going on. And in forgetting, we make terrible mistakes. We forget the cosmic scale of the battle and we begin to think that the the battle is ours to win. We begin to fight 
in our own power and our own strength. But the battle isn't, God, uh, isn't our battle to win, it's God's battle to win. Victory lies beyond us. Victory lies not in our hands, but in the hands of Jesus Christ. And so because we forget the cosmic scale of the battle, we forget that our chief weapons are not our strength, our chief weapons are not fear, surprise and ruthless efficiency. Our chief weapons are prayer and trust in Jesus Christ. And that was Daniel's weapon. Bound up in a situation which was beyond his power. What did he do? He gave himself to prayer and to casting himself on the mercy of God. Well, Daniel's strange vision reminds us that the battle that we face is larger than we can see. It's a heavenly battle as well as an earthly one. In chapter 11, though, we get finally to the meaning of the vision of the future what the future will hold. Uh, a lot of what is there in chapter 11 is stuff that we've, we've kind of been through in uh, some of the, the chapters before. Uh, so we won't go through it in great detail this morning. If you want to check some of that out, you might like to use a, a good study Bible or the, the little commentary by Andrew Reid on Daniel in the library is quite helpful. But what I want to do is just cover some of the highlights of chapter 11. Uh, it starts in verse 2 with the Persian kingdom. Uh, and we're told that after Cyrus there'll be a few more Persian kings. Then a Greek king will take over, who we know from later history to be Alexander the Great. His empire will be divided into four parts. And then from verse 5 to 20, there's this description of an ongoing battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. So I have a map again. Uh, Look at that. How good's that? Uh, so you can see the, the, uh, the, that's the empire of Alexander the Great and there's four coloured regions. There's the green and the other colour and uh, the purple and the brown. Red? Is it red? I think it's red. Uh, uh, so there's the four parts of the empire. The two important ones... Uh, the red bit and the green bit. So the, uh, the red bit is the Ptolemaic Empire in Egypt over here, uh, and that's, that's the king of the south, and the green bit is the Seleucid Empire, that's where Antiochus Epiphanes and, uh, came from later on. Uh, and verses 20 to, to, uh, 5 to 20 of chapter 11 reads, if you go home and read it later, it reads a little bit like the history of the kings and queens of England. Uh, they fight against each other and then they try to form an alliance by marrying someone off, someone's daughter off to somebody else. Uh, things go well for a while and then they, uh, it all falls apart again and they go to war and on and on it goes. And that's kind of what happens in chapter 11. And the point of that chapter is, in chapter 11, is that the people of God would be passengers caught up in this war at the intersection of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the north, the green empire, and the kingdom of the south, the red empire. And as you can see, Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel is right smack bang in the borderline. Uh, you can see Judah, Jerusalem, perhaps just in the middle, where those, the green and the red meet. That's exactly where, where Israel is. 
And what's going on is these, these two kingdoms are waging war against each other and the people of God are caught up in the midst of that. Those kingdoms weren't really set out on uh, causing mayhem for the people of God. They just wanted to extend their territories. But because God's people were where they were, they were caught up in that turmoil. And even that, uh, even that indirect uh, turmoil is still an outworking of that cosmic battle from chapter 10. Thanks, thanks, Hannah, you can put that down. So here are the people of God caught up in, in these events that are happening around them. But the situation changes in the second half of chapter 11 because in verse 21 we're introduced to that recurring figure of the contemptible person who crops up again and again through, uh, through Daniel. This figure will be particularly brutal and obnoxious and he will deliberately persecute the people of God. He'll desecrate the temple, he'll abolish the daily sacrifices in the temple, he'll set up an abomination in the temple, and so on and on and on it goes. And we know from later history that that figure is Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled that uh, Seleucid Empire in the 2nd century BC. We've seen before uh, on our trip through Daniel that people like Antiochus Epiphanes are part of this long line of people who set themselves up against God. People like Nebuchadnezzar, people like Belshazzar, people like Nero and Mao and Stalin, groups like ISIS, people who set themselves up against the people of God. And what we get here in chapter 11 in this description of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign is not just a description of how bad things will be. We've seen that before. We also get here an idea of the kind of effect that that reign will have on the people of God. So look at the end of chapter 11, or not quite the end, uh, chapter uh, 11 verse 32 to 35. And there are, I think, four different responses to the kind of persecution uh, that these people who set themselves up against God, four responses to the, uh, to the people of God, how they respond to that persecution. So first of all, there are those who are corrupted in verse 32 by the flattery of the king. With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, we're told in verse 32. In Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar tried to corrupt Daniel and his friends with sumptuous banquets. Nothing is more deceiving, I think, than that cunning mix of brutality and gentleness. Brutality on the one hand, if you cross me, that'll be the end of you. And gentleness on the other hand, why don't you join with us, you'll be so much at home. It's what Hitler did, actually, during the Second World War. Brutality on the one hand, and offers of peace on the other hand. Vladimir Putin is a classic example. Even as he wages war in the Ukraine and, un and unleashes corruption at home in his government, even as he does that, he has made some remarkable statements about Christianity. So that you would almost think, is this guy on the side of the Christians? It's remarkable. But we shouldn't be sucked into thinking that anyone who says something positive about Christianity is an ally. 
Antiochus Epiphanes, you see, corrupted people by slippery words. There are those who are corrupted by the king, by his flattery and his smooth speech. Second, there are those who resist and remain faithful to God and who, as a result, are burned or captured or plundered. So verse 32 again, with flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. In one of the more disturbing accounts in 2 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees is a a Jewish historical uh, writing from the period of uh, the Maccabean Revolt, which is 160-ish BC. Uh, If you read 2 Maccabees, one of the more disturbing accounts, there is an account of two Jewish women who, uh, in faithfulness to the law of Moses, they they circumcised their, their sons, and because of that, when that was found out, they were brutally punished. Their babies were slaughtered, then hung at the breasts of these women women, as they were paraded through the streets before the crowds, before they were finally hurled over the walls of the city. The price of their faithfulness was incredibly high. But they paid it because they believed God's promise about a Messiah who was to come. Some people are corrupted by the flattery of the king. But other people like those women and many others beside, even in our current world, are not corrupted. They firmly resist but pay the ultimate price because of their faithfulness to God. Third, there are those who are not sincere who join the people of God. Verse 34, when they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Why would insincere people join the church during a time of persecution? Why would they do that? Uh, Probably better than the word insincere, it's helpful to realise that that same word used there instead of sincere Uh, is the word used in verse 32 to describe the flattery of the king. So these people people who join the church are literally smooth. They're smooth talkers. They're flatterers. And the idea seems to be that they join the people of God and achieve from inside the, the, the church the same effect that the king is trying to achieve from outside the church. They join and they say, look guys, we should we should really think about maybe doing what the king's saying. Maybe we should compromise. It's often said that one of the uh, positive effects of persecution is that it purifies the church. And I suppose to some extent that's true. But God says here to Daniel that even during this horrific persecution, some people will join the church and by their smooth, flattering words, will lead people to abandon God. You see, the choice isn't between a battle outside or a battle inside. Daniel says that the subtleties of Satan will be at work inside the church, even as the violence of Satan is at work outside the church. Well, that leads to the last response in verse 35. Some of the wise will stumble, 
so that they may be refined and purified and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. So some of the wise, some of the faithful will stumble. They'll compromise under the pressure from outside and compromise perhaps from some of the subtlety inside. But, and this is the remarkable thing, they won't be lost by it. God will use their compromise, their stumbling, God will use that to purify them and to cleanse them and to refine them and even to strengthen them. I can't help but think of the story of someone like Archbishop Cranmer, who was uh, a reformer during, um, in, during the Reformation in England. He was sent to prison, and I think he'd been in prison for about three years, and they were trying to force him to recant, to deny the gospel uh, under the threat of death. And in the end, he did. Uh, he did recant, and he was still condemned to death. And as he was waiting to die, he realised what he'd done. And he turned back to the gospel. And when the time came for him to stand in front of, in front of the Queen and all her officials uh, and to give his great testimony, they wanted him to stand up and to, to say how he denounced his, uh, his, his belief in the gospel. When the time came for him to get up and to do that, Instead, he denounced what he'd done and said how he turned back to the gospel. And because he'd uh, recanted by signing a document, he said, since my hand offended, it will be punished. When I come to the fire, it first will be burned. And so it was, as he was set alight for believing the gospel, he thrust his hand, which had signed that document, into the fire as a testimony to his belief in the gospel. He stumbled. He, he, he fell. But he was stronger in the end than he was in the beginning. And indeed, I think his testimony was greater at the end than it was at the beginning. Daniel's last vision reminds us that the battles and the turmoil we see in the world reflects a larger heavenly battle. Daniel's vision reminds us of the danger of those human empires and kingdoms that set themselves up in opposition to Jesus and in opposition to Jesus' people. Last of all, Daniel's vision offers us a great uh, vision of hope, of how God will restore and redeem his people. We've seen before in our trip through Daniel that these people like Antiochus Epiphanes, they're part of this long line of people who set themselves up against God, yes, but they're also a pattern of a truly awful person who will set themselves up before God in the very last days before the return of Jesus. And so it is at the end of chapter 11, at the beginning of chapter 12, that this vision starts to zoom out. It begins by talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but as we get closer and closer to chapter 12, it seems to be talking in grander and grander language, in more cosmic language. It will be, we're told, at the time of the end. He will say unheard of things. He will exalt himself above every god. 
The picture zooms out until at the beginning of chapter 12, we've zoomed out so far that what we see is the very time of the end itself. So turn to chapter 12 uh, and we'll read that chapter to see what it was that Daniel glimpsed. So chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found in the, written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because... The words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way until the end. You will rest, and then at the end of your days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. What's the point? Well, we've looked at some of the symbols in weeks gone by, so I won't cover those again. But the point is this the end is coming. The end is coming. But before the end comes, there will be terrible times. When will it end? It will end, Daniel's told rather disturbingly, when God's people have been finally broken. The second half of verse 7, it will be for a time, times and half a time, when the power of the holy people has finally been broken and all these things will be completed. It's not a happy thought. When will the end come? It's when God's people basically have been made an end of. But it's only in that light, you see, that the beginning of chapter 12 comes into its clearest focus. Verse 1, we're told, at that time Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to, everlasting, uh, others to shame and everlasting contempt. 
You see, it's only in that kind of distress uh, and that kind of turmoil that we can ever catch sight clearly of the great hope. Because it's in that kind of turmoil and that kind of distress that the only hope that we can ever have is the hope that Daniel gives us here, the resurrection of the dead. It's the resurrection of those who've put their hope in Jesus to everlasting life, and it's the resurrection of those who've not put their trust in Jesus to everlasting shame and contempt. You see, in a world as broken as ours, the only hope that we have is the end of evil and the resurrection to life through Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for that hope, what would the hope be? Would the hope be to to come out of the lion's den at the other side? Would the hope be to be thrown into a furnace and, and come out in one piece? It's a hope that we just grit our teeth and bear it and hope, it, and hope that we live a, a more or less okay life for the rest of our years. It's a hope, the, the kind of hope that Winston Churchill put forward in the Second World War, to just keep soldiering on in the vain hope that one day there'll be victory. What about all the people who've fallen in the meantime? What about all the, the Christians who've died standing firm in their faith? What about Cranmer, burned at the stake? What about the Christians in Syria and Iraq who are dying as we speak because they remain faithful to Jesus? What's the great hope? In the face of Monday's siege in Sydney, in the face of uh, the slaughter of all those children in Pakistan. What's our great hope? Competent law enforcement agencies? The spread of democracy in the Middle East? Improving stock market conditions? The end of the global financial crisis? No, Daniel gives us a better hope, a richer hope. The end of evil and the resurrection to life of those who put their trust in Jesus. Daniel gets a glimpse of the future and the future that he sees is a future with the resurrection of those who trust in Jesus. The decisive answer to our present and our future distress. Well, Daniel is a book about the people of God living under siege. It's a book about people of God, the people of God living under the reign of bad rulers, waiting for the coming of God's king. This week we remember, uh, on Thursday, the first coming of God's king in the birth of Jesus. But even though Christ has come once, we're still waiting. All God's people are still waiting for the return of the king, where many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life and others to everlasting shame and contempt. I don't know how you found our trip through Daniel, but I hope that the last couple of months has helped you to wait, to wait under bad rulers and to wait for the good King Jesus, to wait in an uncertain and sometimes hostile world, to wait for the coming of the King. I want to leave you with... uh, Some words from the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. Words which I think capture the spirit, the sentiment 
the great hope of the book of Daniel. Spurgeon said, It is a heaven to me to think that Christ is in heaven, and it is another heaven to believe that he will reign among men. If Christ be glorious, it is all the heaven I ask for. If he shall be king of kings and lord of lords, let me be nothing. If he shall but reign and every tongue shall call him blessed, it shall be bliss to me to know it. And if I may be but as one of the withered roses which lie in the path of his triumph, it shall be my paradise. Comrade in arms, as you and I in this ditch lie bleeding on the skirts of the battle, it is sweet to hear the shouts of victory. That is, this is better than wine, better than healing, better than life. See, yonder he rides with his crown upon his helmet. There he rides on his white horse in the very front of the fray. Can you not hear him as he cries onward? And the enemy fly and his forces march on to victory. You and I may lay down and die. What does it matter? For the cause is safe. Jesus is king. Rest assured that Christ's victory is ours. Friends, the king is coming. Long live the king. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we don't need a great vision like Daniel received to know that the world is in turmoil. Lord, we only need to turn on the radio or open the newspaper or watch the television to see that nations rise up against nations, people rise up against people. We only need to see the things that are going on in the world to recognise the reality of the things that Daniel saw so many years ago. And Lord, as we look so often, we're inclined to forget that behind those realities stand cosmic forces. That we live in a world which is marred by sin. That we live in a world where Satan fights against the people of God. Lord, help us not to forget but help us to remember that you are enthroned above all those things. And though kingdoms come and go, and though lives are lost, and though the people of God are persecuted, that you are in control, that Jesus is the King, who has come once and defeated sin and death in judgment, and who is coming again to raise his people from death to everlasting life and to put an end to evil and injustice once and for all. Lord, whatever lies ahead and whatever we may suffer, Lord, help us to stand firm and to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.